All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Living Truth. We're glad you're here. We're in Exodus 19. We're going to do a part two on our God is a consuming fire. And as you turn to Exodus 19, I want to share just a a few of the end verses from Hebrews 12, which we touched on last week. And it's talking about two mountains. I'll mention that in a moment, but here's what it says. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us, the church, show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Hebrews 12.29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. Now you might be asking the question, why would a pastor ever choose a title? Our God is a consuming fire. I, I actually took it right from the scriptures. Uh, and the book of Hebrews chapter 12 is commentary on Exodus 19. And you're going to see it's one of the most powerful passages in all the Bible about the coming of the Lord on Mount Sinai. The writer of Hebrews picks up that theme and compares uh, or really gives the option of two different mountains where you can meet God. You can meet God on Mount Sinai, which is the mountain of law, and that's where God gives the law. Other passages say he gives it among the myriads of angels. He comes down in mighty power and fire and lightning and all divine electricity, you could say. And the people's response is one of fear. The people actually say at one point, you go talk to him and tell us what he said. We don't don't want to get near him. They heed the warnings. There's a second mountain in Hebrews chapter 12 that's talked about. It's called Mount Zion. And it's the mountain of mercy or the mountain of grace. It points to the cross of Jesus Christ where some of that same divine theophany visitation uh, stuff happens like uh, darkness and earthquake and so forth. We'll talk about that at the end of this message. And so essentially the writer says you have have basically two options. Meet God at Sinai or meet God at Zion. Meet him at the mountain of law or meet him at the mountain of mercy. Which would you prefer? Well, I think if we were to poll the congregation, we'd all say, mercy, 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 right? I'll take all the mercy I can get. And that's the smart move. And the way that you end up at Mount Zion is you come through the greater mediator. Moses is a picture of him. But the greater Moses is Jesus. And he brings us into a new covenant And that's how we are right with God. And so we don't have to meet God in his wrath, if you will. Rather, we meet him in his mercy as expressed through our Lord Jesus Christ. Join me in prayer. Father, as we look at this awesome, uh, incredible scene of Mount Sinai, last week we talked about a possible location for the mountain. Um, Lord, it it is uh, an amazing uh, demonstration of who you are. And And I pray that it will give us a new appreciation of When we say God, who we're talking about, and this is the God who made incredible sea creatures, who uh, made the the dry land and the oceans, the stars, every star you call by name. You are holy and majestic. Not only did you make the world, but you sustain the world by the word of your power. And it is amazing that you would condescend to people like us, stoop down to enter into world history in the person of Christ to Show us who God is. Jesus, you said to the apostles, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And that is an amazing, beautiful, blessed gift that we have in Jesus Christ. And I pray 
that we would find a new appreciation for your holiness today. We are going to tie some of this to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, where you, you will come in holiness and in fire and power. And we just want to be on the right side, Lord, when it's all said and done. We want to know you. We want to know you and the power of your resurrection. And, and even, Paul will say, the fellowship of your sufferings. We want to be conformed more into your image. So let that be what the result is today. We lay this time at your feet. Pray that you'd be pleased with how we divide the text, but also how we respond to it. In Jesus' name, and if you agree, would you say? Amen. Amen. Our God is a consuming fire, part two, Exodus 19, verse nine. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. If you have an NIV, it says, we'll always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Now Moses is going back and forth as the mediator, bringing God's word to the people and then, God, then the word of the people back to the Lord. And you'll notice that the Lord says in verse 9, Exodus 19, I shall come to you. I am coming and we serve a God who is willing to stoop down and enter into time and space. And I have to tell you that this occasion that happened did happen in our history. Moses was a real man. Sinai was a real place. And God really came down. And the record of that divine visitation, often called a theophany by scholars, occurred. And God was making a clear statement that he would stoop down to the people and he would come down in this uh, incredible manifestation. Jesus said it this way. He said, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has crossed over from death to life. Jesus, who is God, who came down to us, says these words. The people said, what, what, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom God has sent. So I want you to see in the middle of verse 9 that you might say, well, what does God expect when he comes down on Sinai? What is he looking for from the people? Well, he wants them to believe, and here specifically to believe in Moses, the mediator. They had had a lot of doubts about Moses. They were questioning Moses. They wanted to stone him at one point. And Moses is certainly just a man, but Moses becomes a picture of a greater mediator that is coming a prophet, Moses would say, just like me. God will send a prophet like me. Him you will listen to. So I want you to see that ultimately this is going to be fulfilled in the greater Moses that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just an FYI, as you turn to Isaiah 57 with me, this Wednesday night we're going to look at the deity of Jesus Christ from the end of 1 John. So if you're interested, if, you, if you're wondering, what does the Bible say about the deity of Christ uh, that's this Wednesday night. We're in Isaiah 57. Often what happened is when the nation of Israel went on in their history, they would get away from God and there would be spiritual dryness and just, you know, a lot of difficulty and they would be wondering, why isn't God moving the way that he used to? Why isn't God coming down like the way he came down on Mount Zion? You know, I, I think all of us could say, Going to church is wonderful. We want to fellowship with other believers, but, but I want to see the Lord move in our generation. I want to see the Lord come down, if you will, amen, and visit us in the sense of revival. 
And so this is the backdrop. Uh, Isaiah's writing to a, a, a nation that is, has been judged and is about to be judged by God again through foreign armies, and God would use all kinds of different things. And here's what it says. Isaiah 57, uh, part B of verse 13 says, But he who takes refuge in me shall inherit the land and shall possess my holy mountain. And it shall be said, Isaiah 57, 14, build up, build up, prepare the way. This is uh, the imagery of a king coming, just like we see on Sinai when God comes down. Remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus, thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. We might ask, who does God condescend to meet with? Who does he reveal himself to? I dwell on a high and holy place and also, notice, with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. If you want to know who the Lord is, it always starts with humility. Humility is always the doorway to come to know God. God will resist the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Sinai is going to be a time of humbling for the people because they've been questioning God and questioning Moses. So I want you to turn over to Isaiah 63, and God is going to show them who it is that they are to worship. And as the writer Isaiah reflects on the history of his nation, he begins to go back to things that happened through Mo Moses and Mount Sinai and the wilderness wanderings. Isaiah 63, 9 says, In all their affliction, God was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they, that is the nation of Israel, rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy and he fought against them. Then his people remembered the days of old, of Moses, where, where they said, where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness, they did not stumble. As the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make for thyself a glorious name." And then he says, look down from heaven. I want to see this again, Lord. See from thy holy and glorious habitation where are thy zeal and thy mighty deeds. The stirrings of thy heart and thy compassion are restrained toward me. Lord, where is your compassion upon your people? And then picking it up at 6319 of Isaiah, he says, we have become like those over whom thou hast never ruled like those who are not called by thy name. I want to make a comment about America. As, as we know that no nation is perfect, America had its flaws at the beginning, but the founding fathers of America said that the government that they set up, a constitutional republic, could only work for a people that were governed under the authority of the Holy Bible. This is what they said, and people will mock it today, but this is actually the foundations of the country in which you and I live. We were given a constitution. It is an amazing document, but the founders said, and most of them were trained for the ministry. There were some of them that were not as spiritual or not as committed as others, but basically what they said is this, that this government cannot work unless 
it is a moral people that is sitting under it because it is basically a self-governed land. It's representative government. We choose our leaders, etc. And I look at America today and I wonder how far have we gone away from a biblical worldview where now such ridiculous things are coming down the pike that they're affecting nearly every area of our lives and they're all based on worldview. You need to know that. You need to know that your view of the world, your view of where things are going, how it all began, where it's going, what morals you are to live by, whether there are moral absolutes, objective truth, etc., has a huge impact on a culture. And right now, America is reeling because we have lost our way. It's as if, the, it's as if God never governed us. It's as if we're changing even our history to mock some of the people that were strategic in the founding of this nation. And if you want to see something on Christopher Columbus that's actually accurate to his history, watch David Barton's treatment on it. You just search David Barton and Christopher Columbus and he'll tell you the real story about Columbus and how he was guided by God. And yet, all these people were people of their time and they were all imperfect. But what is missing today is an accurate retelling of American history as well. And the, the, the prophet here, Isaiah, is saying, we're, we're living as if we never knew you, God, and we're getting judged as if we never knew you. And you can think about that for a second and just think about the last 18 months around the world. And so you might say, well, what is the remedy? Well, here's the prayer of Isaiah. He says, 64.1, oh, that thou would rend the heavens and come down. I want to see Sinai again. That the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst awesome things which we did not expect, thou didst come down, the mountains quaked, here's Sinai imagery, at thy presence, for from old they have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither neither has the eye seen a God besides thee who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. And I was thinking of that beautiful song, uh, and it talks about we, we will wait for you. We're waiting for you with our hands lifted high in praise. It's you we adore singing hallelujah. We are waiting here for you. We're going to sing that at the end of our service. Look, this is what we need. We need a divine visitation in revival. Amen? We need the Spirit of God to move among the people of God so that we won't say like Isaiah, it's as if we were never governed by you. Like nobody knew that the Holy Bible was the textbook in our public schools for a long time. What has happened to the nation? And those who are watching trends are saying that what's happened to Europe is going to happen to America unless we have a revival, brethren. This is just the facts. This is what's going on. Nehemiah put it this way. He's praying and and if you turn back to Exodus 19, Nehemiah, there's a great revival and the people stand before the word of God and they hear it and they, they want to hear the book. They say, bring out the book. And Nehemiah in chapter 9 prays and he says, then you did come down on Mount Sion, or Mount Sinai. This is Nehemiah 9.9. 9. 
and did speak with them, Israel, from heaven. Thou did give them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. When you came down, the people waited for you, and when you came down, you gave them truth. You gave them substance. In fact, the Ten Commandments on which Western culture was built, that's what God gave them at Sinai. But God also manifested his glory there, and he came down in a thick cloud, in thunder and lightning, we'll read about later. When God gives Isaiah a picture, a vision of the temple, the angels are crying out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then Isaiah says, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Whenever there's a theophany, whenever God appears, there's lightning and thunder and fire and the earthquakes. It's almost as if the earth begins to tremble at the coming of its creator because it knows better than a lot of people know. Because right now, we have worshiped the creature rather than the creator and thinking that we've become wise, we've actually become fools. And much of what is touted as science today is just utter foolishness. And so God comes down to his people. Mark 9, 7, when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says a cloud formed overshadowing them. Peter, James, and John were there. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Psalm 104, 1 through 3 says, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with splendor and majesty, covering thyself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He, God, lays beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. When the writers of scripture want to paint a picture of who God is, they begin to to take some of the manifestations of nature and some of the more radical things that we see in the world. They say, this is what God rides upon. The clouds become his chariot. The lightning bolts become a manifestation of who he is. Revelation 10.1 says, "I I saw another strong angel. Some people believe Jesus coming down out of heaven. Revelation 10.1, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. The people could only come so close because God's holiness is on display at Sinai. And God says, I'm coming down. And I want you to know this, brethren, that God is coming again in fire and great glory in the person of Jesus Christ. All judgment has been given to the Son, John chapter 5. And Jesus said, I am coming again. You could take it to the bank. Take it to the bank. Jesus is coming in the power and manifestations that we're going to see on Mount Mount Sinai. And so the Lord... Exodus 19.10 said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Now you might say, well, what do you do to prepare for the arrival of God? (laughs) Well, one thing that you do is that they're told to believe in Moses as the mediator. Second thing is they are to go from belief to consecration. The word consecrate there in verse 10 of Exodus 19 is kadash in Hebrew, related to the word kadosh. And it means to make holy, which means to make acceptable to God, or it means that you belong to God. To be set apart is this Hebrew word. The the Greek equivalent is hagios in the New Testament. And that's the word for a saint. 
And we as Christians are saints. We're holy and beloved of God, not because we're particularly holy, but because we are in Christ and we're cloaked in the holiness of Jesus Christ. That's how God now sees us. He sees us through the finished work of his son. And God says, I want you, Moses, to consecrate the people. Now, how would Moses do this? Well, reading between the lines, probably through an animal sacrifice. And the word kadosh there, set them apart, sanctify them. Today and tomorrow, let them wash their garments. Get ready. Let them put on their Sabbath best. People, get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. And so the people were to get ready. Moses probably offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And they were literally to be kadosh. They were to be set apart. Here's the interesting thing. In the Hebrew picture language, kadosh means that which comes or that which follows the threshing. You say, what does that mean? Well, in the ancient world and still today, they would separate the wheat from the chaff in a process called the threshing or the threshing floor. And the temple in Jerusalem, David purchased from Ornan the Jebusite, was actually a threshing floor. The temple was built on a threshing floor, and the temple is all about holiness. It's all about how you approach God and how holy he is. And the way that we become holy practically is by separating the wheat in our lives from the chaff. The chaff needs to be burned up, amen? That's practical holiness. Holiness is what follows the threshing. It's getting the chaff out of your life so the wheat can come up and things can grow and you can be blessed. And so this is an interesting word. And so they were, they were to go through this sacrificial process, whatever it was, and then they were to take perhaps a mikvah, but it does here say the washing of their clothes and not their bodies. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, having our bodies washed with pure water as it begins to talk about the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the mediator of a new covenant. But they were to wash their clothing. And your clothing represents you. So they were basically to clean up their lives in preparation for the Lord's arrival. If you knew that the Lord was going to come at 9 p.m. tonight, what would you do? Would you get in some of those closets that need to be cleaned out? Ooh, get rid of it. The Lord's coming, Lord's coming, Lord's coming. Right? What would you need to clean out of your life? What chaff needs to go? Some of you may say, well, my eschatology is that the Lord probably will not return in our lifetime. Well, let me uh, tell you something else. You're a heartbeat away from meeting him. So if he doesn't come in your lifetime, you're still going to die because the statistics on death are quite impressive. (laughs) I'm sure you've noticed. So either way, our life has to be Preparing to meet our God. Can I ask you, how are you doing with that? Do you know there's, there's no way to predict when we're going to be with the Lord? And here's the good news. We're going to be with the Lord as believers. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So we don't have to freak out about that. But how prepared are we? How much have we used our life for his glory, for his purposes? You know, a lot of times when we're faced with the, this prospect of our mortality, we, you know, maybe we're not feeling well or something's going on, we, we'd like to push back. You know, please give me more time, more time, more time. And, th- and that's human, and, and that's fine, and that's good. 
But at some point, we're going to meet our God. And what we did in this life does matter. And so the people were to clean their garments. Jacob, uh, he says this to, to a group that he's with. Uh, actually, the Lord's speaking to Jacob. And he says, arise and go to Bethel, Genesis 35, 1. Live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you, Genesis 35, 2, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Why would Jacob, who gets renamed Israel, have to tell his extended household to get rid of their idols? Why were their idols there in the first place? But let's take our example of Jesus appearing at 9 p.m. tonight. What idols would need to go out of your life? Would you have to do some cleanup, some quick cleanup? Jesus coming 9 o'clock, <laughs> right? I mean, that tells us where we're at. And if you're good and if you say, you know what? I'm feeling good. There's, there's nothing that I think I would have to clean out of my life. You're probably at a pretty good place. But if, you're, if that prospect of his appearance makes you think about several locations in your house and your life, you may want to get rid of the idols and put on some fresh new garments. In the spiritual sense, it's putting on the new man. It's putting on the armor of God. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, 1 John 3, 1, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, 1 John 3, 3, purifies himself, even as he is pure. The Lord calls upon his New Testament church to purify ourselves. Why? Because the Lord wants us to be clean vessels. And we live in a very dirty world. We live in a world that bombards us with all kinds of garbage. And the Lord says, I want my people to be pure. And yes, we have a uh, positional righteousness because of the work of Jesus. We can't get any more righteous because of God's work through the cross, through the resurrection. We got to understand that. But practical holiness is something that God still calls us to. Be holy, for I am holy. And Israel is being called upon to get ready. 1911 of Exodus, let them be ready. For the third day, on the third day, the Lord, that's Yahweh, will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. That mountain was going to be oozing, with, filled with divine electricity. If you were to uh, locate the actual Mount Sinai, find it, verify it, and touch it today, you wouldn't sizzle. You know why? <laughs> because God is not there today. He lives in the heavens, the earth. He lives somewhere in another dimension. The earth is simply his footstool, right? So that Sinai wouldn't hurt you if you touched it. And you might be saying, well, they... God wants the people to know him. He's coming down, but then he, he puts all these parameters on it, all these boundaries. Well, it's for their own safety because of God's holiness. But here's my point. 
Today, touching the mountain wouldn't matter because what makes the mountain holy is the Holy One. Earlier in chapter 3, the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It burnt, but it, did not, it was not consumed. And what's one of the first things that God says to Moses? Take off your sandals. You're, you are on holy ground. Now, that ground wasn't particularly holy before then. What made it holy was the presence of God. Now, here's the connection. What makes you holy is the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. This makes you extraordinary. This makes you special. This makes you a peculiar people, a people of God's own possession. Amen? This is why our lives are special as believers, because we have been set apart by God as holy. I was at an early Bible study one time with a wonderful, uh, previously Roman Catholic brother, and the Roman Catholic Church says that, you know, in order to become a saint, to be truly holy, you've got to have done a miracle, and there's all these other requirements. And so I was teaching through, I think, Ephesians at the time, and it was early morning, and it's about 6 a.m. Bible study. There's about seven or eight guys around the table. It was an ugly scene, drool on some of their, you know, there were, some people were taking coffee intravenously. It was just, it was, a, it was an ugly scene anyway. But, and I'm teaching this passage, and I said, the Bible says that you are all saints because of who you are in Christ. Positionally, you're a saint. And this wonderful Roman Catholic, former Roman Catholic brother looked around, and he said, I know one thing. Ain't none of you saints. Because <laughs> he was looking at our outward appearance. And, and certainly he had, he had real reason to doubt from the exterior. But we were in Christ. The reason that this book is holy is because it's breathed out by God. It's, it's been bound the way books are bound. It has the same paper that a lot of different books have. But it is holy. Prophets were holy because God set them apart. Ground was holy because God was there. God makes that which is unholy, holy, including you and me. Praise the Lord. That's how we become right with God. But they're warned there's a way to approach God. Don't touch. Near his presence, says one writer, we are lashed with terror, but leashed with longing. We want to know God, but we know when we read about God, how awesome and powerful he is. When Jesus appears in, at the end of Revelation 19, he's going to appear with a multitude, with probably all of the angels in flaming fire. His name is the word of God. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. There's awesome imagery when it relates to the coming of God. And here, I don't know if people quickly grabbed pens and began to write signs, beware of God, beware of God, beware of God. Now, today, they're beware of dog. But And the people were warned, don't come near, don't touch. There'll be a time for you to come up, but you are to worship the Lord acceptably with reverence and awe. And so no hand shall touch him the person who touches the mountain, 13, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. I'm not sure who would do this, but it would be beast or man, he shall not live. Not even a beast could come near and touch it. And when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Now they can come up, but only after the blowing of the shofar. And it would be a long blast, and then the people were allowed to make their way up. 
It is interesting because the Bible says that when Jesus comes again, there's going to be the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And when that happens, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air and the clouds in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The Lord's going to descend with a trumpet or a shofar blast. And it says in other places, like in one of the Psalms, that the Lord, when he descended upon uh, Sinai, was there with a myriad of angels and that the law was mediated through angels. So up on Mount Sinai, God came down, the angels came down, and it was this amazing scene of heaven coming down to us. And heaven has come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The words that I speak are from the Father. I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. You want to know what heaven's like? You want to know what God is like? You want to know what God has to say to a contemporary people like us? Read about the life of Jesus. Jesus said, if you don't believe me, believe the works that I do. But the nation largely rejected him when Jesus appeared. Why? The religious leadership cared too much about their power with Rome, the money they were making in the temple and so forth, their prestige and even their religiosity. And when Jesus did many, many miracles, including raising Lazarus from the dead, you know what they said? We need to kill Lazarus too because he's a witness of the power of Christ. See, this is why even when God comes to a generation, and makes himself clear, it's still about our heart. It's still about how we will respond. And so the shofar was blown. I don't know who would blow it. It could have been one of the angels there on Mount uh, Sinai. And they would blow the ram's horn, and the Lord would descend, and the people would come up. This is beautiful end times imagery, isn't it? Because when the Lord descends on the day of the Lord, there's going to be two responses. If you're here on the planet and you see Jesus coming in flaming fire with a myriad of angels and so forth, and you know him, you know what you're going to say? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, here we go. But if you're on the other side and you don't know Jesus, you're going to be saying, ruh -roh. Because you're going to meet the God of Sinai without being in the covering of Jesus Christ. Everybody with me? without being cloaked in his righteousness. This is what it means to be in Christ and what it means not to be in Christ. And some people kind of jokingly say, well, when God comes, you know, I'll meet him for a cup of coffee and I got some questions. We're going to be talking about my top 10 questions about me and the big guy upstairs. We're going to have a conversation. No, you ain't. <laughs> See, our God is a consuming fire. He's so holy, you can't even look upon him and live. He says later to Moses, and Moses got about as close as anybody could get in the Old Testament. He said, you, you can't see my face and live, Moses. No one can gaze upon the fullness of my glory and live. You, you would just die without that covering, without being born again. And of course, we're going to be fully redeemed in our bodies as well. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, Jesus tells a story Matthew 25, 5 and 6, they all got drowsy, the ten virgins, and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. 
Come out to meet him. This is what's going to happen when the Lord appears. He's going to come, and the, the real issue is going to be whether or not you got oil in your lamp. And a lot of people think the oil is representative of the Holy Spirit in your life. So two primary uses for the shofar, the blowing of the trumpet. One, it was to call the people of God to the presence of God, to call a sacred assembly. So they blow the horn. And it would blow, and the people would know, okay, it's time to gather to the Lord. The other purpose of the blowing of the shofar was to go to war. Think about it. When the Lord comes and the trumpet blows, the people of God are going to go to the presence of God in the rapture, resurrection and rapture, and the Lord is going to go to war in the day of the Lord imagery all over our Bible. And this is what's going to happen when the trumpet blows. The people of God are rescued and the wrath of God comes down. So Mount Sinai is about a covenant. It's about who our God is. And when the people heard about what God wanted to do, remember, they responded with, everything he said, we'll do. Everything he said, we'll do. Yeah, 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 yeah. We do, we do, we do, we do. How'd they do? How'd they do with keeping God's top 10 commandments given to them on Sinai? Uh, well, it didn't take long until they were making a golden calf. Remember that? <laughs> they broke pretty much every one of the commandments within a matter of days or hours. Why? Why couldn't they keep the law? Well, because, let's take it to us. It, the problem is our humanity. We, we, mean to, we often mean to do well, but even what, when we mean to do well, we don't do what we're supposed to do. And think about the commandments. They're pretty good, right? Don't have any other gods before the God of the Bible. Don't make an idol. You know, uh, don't take his name in vain. The moral side of it, don't murder anybody. Don't steal stuff that doesn't belong to you. Don't covet. Don't commit adultery. These, these are pretty good laws. And, and they're, here's what they're really about. They're really about loving God and loving others and not being selfish. And that is where all our problems begin. Because the hit song says that the greatest love of all is to love me. Isn't it? Well, there was a hit song. The greatest love. <laughs> and I can't hit the notes, right? No, I'm not even going to try. That would scare you away. But here's the thing. The greatest love of all is not to love yourself. That's a cultural mantra. The greatest love of all is to love God and to love others. And when you find that great love, your life begins to fall into place. I believe that our culture is as sick as it is because we have become consumed with self. And I want you to let that sink in. Our culture is probably as mentally sick as it's ever been in my lifetime because we are consumed with self and perception of self. Whether it's social media, whether it's the way we were born or what we think of ourselves, etc. You can walk it out in all sorts of moral dysfunction, brethren. This is where it is. And the Bible says there's a remedy for that. Get your eyes off of yourself. Get your eyes on God and get your eyes on others and you'll find great meaning. You know, they, they found that often uh, in the history of nations uh, that when a nation was self-consumed, it was very sick 
And oftentimes what got nations out of that was going to war. You know why? Because when a war occurred, people's attention moved away from self-consumption to I got to fight for safety and freedom and family. And all of a sudden, all these people that were sick and you know, needed counseling, etc., all of a sudden were well again because their focus shifted. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? America has gotten to the point we've gotten to because we've become so consumed about identity and self instead of finding our identity in Christ. Well, you may say, well, then why the law? Well, the law was added because of transgressions till the mediator should come or to the, till the seed should come. Galatians 3.19 talks about this, that the law was given until the mediator would arrive or until the seed would arrive, that is Christ. And the law, we transgress, which really means we step over the boundary. And I want you to step back for a second and see Mount Sinai in your mind, see the boundaries, and we don't have a record that anybody crossed the boundary, but isn't there always at least one? You know, God says, tell people don't touch the mountain, tell people don't cross the boundary. And there's usually always one that goes, is the paint really wet? Is the fence really electrified? <laughs> right? There's always one in the group. But apparently the people did heed this. And so they listened to Moses, and God said, when the shofar blows, then you can come up. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people. He consecrated the people, probably with a sacrifice. They washed their garments, 15. And he said to the people, be ready. For the third day, do not go near a woman. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know that God has blessed intimacy in marriage. Hebrews 13, 4 says, marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed is undefiled. God designed intimacy in marriage to be a beautiful, wonderful thing. And we need to make sure that we understand this in the church. This was God's design. Marriage was God's idea. Oneness was God's invention. God designed it. He, he made uh, male and female for that very purpose, and that's when we come together in that setting. And it is beautiful and wonderful and freeing, and we should hold that up to our culture today. But there was a, there's a time here where you're getting ready to meet the living God where you're told, don't be involved in intimate relations. Why? Well, because it was a very special occasion. And 1 Corinthians 7, 5, if you're taking notes, says that you and your spouse can agree not to come together sexually for a time to dedicate yourselves to prayer and maybe even fasting. But it has to be agreed upon, and it only has to be a short while, lest by not coming back together, the devil get a foothold in your relationship. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. And so I think this is just simply saying Yes, marriage is good, intimacy in marriage is good, but this is a special occasion, so I want you to wash your clothes and steer clear of intimacy for this time. Psalm 24, 3 says, Who may ascend into the holy hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, 
who seek thy face, even Jacob, Selah. This was a song, and it asked the question, who may ascend the holy hill of the Lord? And there's a modern song that says, give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. Let us not give our souls to another. Amen. Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that's why we need a foreign righteousness to come in to us. That's why holiness comes to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ, who when dying on the cross, there was darkness and there was shaking of the earth and there was all these manifestations of judgment as Jesus was taking the judgment for us. And so get ready. Prepare your heart, prepare yourself, prepare your body. And so it came about on the third day because God always keeps his promises and his calendar. When it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. The third day the manifestation came. God came down. Notice what happened. Thunder. Lightning flashes, a thick cloud upon the mountain, and the trumpet was also blowing simultaneously. Sights and sounds electrified the air. I mean, it was just going crazy. And the people were trembling, or to steal a line from the Wizard of Oz, tell me when it's over, tell me when it's over, tell me when it's over. I mean, it had to be a heavy, heavy time. The people were trembling, and Moses talks about this in Deuteronomy 9, I think it's verse 19, and he says, I was shaking with fear, because I'm the guy that's supposed to go and talk to him, right? Imagine being Moses. The people were saying, yeah, you go talk to him. Tell us, tell us what he says. Yeah, go, go ahead, Moses. Aren't you glad you signed up for the ministry? Isn't that wonderful? You thought you were just going to have to preach and lead them. No, no, you're going into the fire. And Moses had to do that. Moses trembled. The mountain trembled. There was a whole lot of shaking going on. And in Hebrews 12, God says he's going to shake the world again so that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And taking us, fast-forwarding us to the second coming of Christ says the world conditions are going to be very much the same. When the Lord appears, there's going to be fire and lightning and the blowing of the shofar and the world's going to shake and God is going to shake the world. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And I've got news for the people of the world today who think the global warming's going to end the world. It ain't. The world's going to end when God says it's going to end. Now, I will tell you that it is important that we take care of the planet because we are stewards of the planet. But you watch this little girl. I don't even remember where she's from. She goes before this you know, group of people. You ruined our planet. Everything's destroyed. People are saying, in 12 years, the earth will burn up due to uh, global warming, maybe global freezing, maybe climate change. I don't know. What is it? Well, let me just say, climate has been changing since the beginning. It's called the seasons. You know, you have summer and you have spring and you have winter and you have fall. Now, in Southern California, you people don't know anything about climate changing because it's always 85. It's Christmas Day and it's 85 in Southern California. But look, 
The world is not going to end until God says it's going to end. And this current heavens and earth, according to Peter, are being reserved for fire, for the day of judgment. Peter says, in the last days, 2 Peter 3, 3, mockers will come with their mocking and they will say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues as it was. And Peter says, oh, but it escapes their notice that God did judge the world. He judged it with a worldwide flood. You ever stood at the Grand Canyon? You ever wondered how the Grand Canyon was created? Do you know the evolutionary scientists say the Grand Canyon was created by a river running uphill for billions of years? Uh, what? First of all, I didn't think rivers ran uphill. Secondly, how could the Grand Canyon be created by a river running uphill for billions of years? That is foolishness. There was a flood, people. And it created a lot of different things in this world that you can see. And the world is going to be judged again, but not by water. The second time is by fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And in that day, you want to be found in him. Amen? And he's put off his coming. He's patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but all to come to repentance. And let me just say, I'm going to say a word about worldview again. Because of these decisions that are being made about climate change and about things that are related to it, it is steering governmental decisions. It is steering steering life choices among people. If you think your worldview doesn't matter, think about how something that is really, in my view, not even scientific, is steering our whole culture and causing disaster in a number of areas. This is where you need to understand your worldview matters. See, if you have a biblical worldview, you know, yeah, you steward the planet. Yeah, you take over it. You take care of it. But in the end, you are not going to determine when it all wraps up. God is going to determine that. When you stand before those three cans that you have like me, and you take your milk jug, and you say, oh, no, if I don't put it in this can, the planet's destroyed. No, you don't have that much power. I'm sorry. God is in control. God is sovereign. And I say all this just not to offend anybody, but just to say this. Your worldview matters. And if you believe that God is sovereign and God is telling the story about how you should live and how it's going to wrap up, then you don't have to freak out about these things. The times will wrap up when God says they're going to wrap up. And not before, and not one day after. He has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. That's what we know as believers. And today, sadly, that is mocked by a lot of people. And so Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. What are we going to do today? We're going to meet God. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Write that on your calendar. What'd you do today? I met God. Do you know what? You're going to meet God. And it ain't that far away. We're going to see him face to face. And here's the beautiful news. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more mourning, no more pain. Maybe he'll say it to us. No more mourning, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. The former things, they're gone. Behold, I make all things new. And you can take this to the bank because faithful and true are his words. And so the people 
got a chance to meet the Lord. Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. The smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain quaked violently. There was all these images of divine visitation. I do want to show you a few New Testament passages quickly, turning over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I've already uh, paraphrased Peter, so I won't take you there, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is what it talks about in terms of the return of Christ, tying it to the imagery of Mount Sinai. 2 Thessalonians 1.5 says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, 2 Thessalonians 1.6, It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. What's that? Well, it's away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now notice this. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Flip back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, look at verse 10. Here's what Jesus does for us. We're going to marvel at him that day. I think we're going to be amazed at the appearance of our God, at the power of his divine manifestation. But here's what 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says of Jesus, we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus. What does he do for us? He rescues us from the wrath to come. It's not a popular topic, obviously, but there is wrath to come. And Jesus, when he dies on the cross, takes that wrath for us. If you're familiar with the gospel, you know that's what's going on at the cross at Mount Zion, if you will, back to Exodus 19, and we'll finish it. Jesus is taking the wrath of God. So we don't have to face the God of Mount Sinai, but rather we can come to the mountain of mercy. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Hebrew word can mean loud, but I think here it means thunder. The Moses would speak, and, and it sounded like thunder to the people, and it wasn't the angels bowling on top of Mount Sinai. So get that out of your head. It was thunder, but it was the voice of God. That's all you can compare it to. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire, Deuteronomy 5.4. Deuteronomy 5.24 says, You said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. We've heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. They go on to say, Deuteronomy 5.26, uh, For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Israel had this moment like, we've heard the voice of God and we've lived to tell about it. God has spoken in history. Sinai happened. Bethlehem happened. Jesus arrived on the scene and God has spoken. And in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. Amen. If you want to know what God has to say, study the life of Jesus. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai 
to the top of the mountain, 20. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Now, either Moses is in tremendous physical shape or there was a ski lift on Mount Sinai. What do you think? Or an elevator. I don't know. Was there a divine elevator? I mean, how many times does this guy have to go up and down? He's 80. <laughs> I mean, I, even if he was in triathlons for a while, I would be getting tired. Lord, do you have an elevator? Can one of the angels pick me up? How many times do I have to go up and down and down and up? Maybe he gave him divine energy. I don't know. So he went up. The Lord spoke to Moses. Go down. And <sighs> warned the people lest they break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Several warnings. Also let the priests, I think this is probably the firstborn of each family, there's no formal priesthood yet, who come near to the Lord, consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Be careful. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou didst warn us, saying, set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Okay, Lord, you've told us. We get it. We're not coming until you say. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron. Yeah, you got a feel for Moses there with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. I think of Uzzah in the Old Testament who tried to steady the ark when it was being moved the wrong way. And he touched the ark and God killed him on the spot. I think of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament who came to give an offering. Here's all the money we got from the land sale. Peter said, is that all the money? It's every penny. Okay. Husband drops dead. Wife. <laughs> hey, this is the Lord, right? Wife comes in. Peter says, uh, uh, we'll talk about your husband later, but is this the amount that you sold for the land? Wife drops dead. See, our God is holy. And this is something that we don't want to mess with. And so Moses went down to the people and told them, don't pass through the bonds, you know, follow the rules. And let me just show you uh, something from Exodus 20 and we're done. This will explain a little bit more of what was going on. Look at verse 18. If the worship team can hear my voice, why don't you come on out? Exodus 20, 18 says, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid for God has come in order to test you. Notice, here's purpose of this coming the way it happened. In order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. And so the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. And then the Lord begins to speak to Moses, and we'll study this in a later uh, time together. The people were overwhelmed by the appearance of God. And some of you may be saying, well, wasn't the glory cloud there by day, leading them by day, and then the pillar of fire by night? Didn't they already have a sense of the awesome presence of God? I think that that glory cloud was just a small taste it was just a small sample. But Sinai was a fuller reveal of the power and majesty of God. Can I ask you, is this the God that you worship? Is this the God that you have come to know? Do you understand how powerful he is? Do you understand he spoke sea creatures into existence and seas and dry land, names every star by name, holds them together by the word of his power. This is the one who holds me together. 
This is the one that says, of all that he made, the only one made in his image is human beings like you and me. The ones that he chose to save by the gift of his son are human beings like you and me. He loves you. This is the God to whom we must give an account. But this is the God who's loved us from the very beginning. Amen? Amen. He's good. And he has made a way for us to come and be with him. Thank you, Father. We just want to say we love you. We're so grateful that Sinai reveals the power of your majesty, the glory of who you are. Thank you that at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see some of these uh, theophany manifestations. And at the second coming, we're going to see something very similar. I don't know what viewpoint we're going to have, but when you descend in power, there's going to be no mistaking that this is the God who made the world and everything in it. And the God that made the world and everything in it doesn't dwell in temples built with human hands as though he needed something from us. But he has set the boundaries of our habitation. We're here, we live where we live because God decided the time that we would live and the place that we would live. That perhaps we would reach out for him, grope for him, though he's not far from each one of us. Thank you, Lord, that you brought the gospel near to us in the person of Christ. Thank you that you're always revealing your glory to the world in what's been created so that man is without excuse. But thank you that you took it a step further and from natural general revelation, you came and dwelt among us. You invited people to trust in you You did miracles to prove who you were, died on a cross for us, and the ultimate miracle is your resurrection, which you predicted, which you accomplished. And now you say to anyone who will hear your voice, come. You can come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God so loved you He gave his one and only son so that you could ascend, he descended. Would you cry out to him right now? Don't let this moment pass you by. If you're not a Christian, and maybe this is the first time you've understood the gospel, maybe you're watching via live stream and you're in your living room right now and you might want to get down on your knees and just say, Lord, I've got a fuller picture of who you are. You are holy. This makes me appreciate all the more that you came down in the person of Jesus. Pray it if it's you. I repent of my sin. I'm sorry. I've broken your law more times than I could say. If I had to face you in my own performance, I'm dust. So I'm going to trust in the finished work of your son. I'm going to trust in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection. I'm going to believe in the one that you sent. Would you save me? If you're a prodigal right now and you've run from your father and maybe you've embraced some of the cultural ideas and they've robbed you of faith and made you question who you are, It's time to come home. For the God of the Bible is the true God. 
And you can see how holy he is. And yet he, like a father, bids you to come home. Come home, child. And for all the dear saints, Father, that are listening right now, my simple prayer is that as we wait for you, you would renew our hearts, refresh our souls, renew our hope. Let that hope in Christ be the anchor of our souls so that we're not blown around so that when the world shakes, we don't have to shake with it. But also, Lord, that we can tell other people how to find hope. We can tell them the good news. We can share it on the mountaintops that our God is a saving God. We love you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?